Hello, and welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast, conversations about impact, where entrepreneurs and leaders share how they have impact, the sweet moments, and the challenges. I'm your host, Ursula York. I help entrepreneurs grow successful businesses that make a difference in the world. Impact is more than mission, more than purpose, even more than your why. Impact is where you and your unique business meet the world and contribute to making it better for all of us. These stories are here to inspire and energize you so you can have your own unique impact. Today's guest on the podcast is Michael Gelb. Michael has pioneered the fields of creative thinking, accelerated learning, and innovative leadership. He is the co-author of The Healing Organization and author of The Art of Connection, the international bestseller, How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, and most recently, Mastering the Art of Public Speaking. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. I'm delighted to have you here again. You've been a guest on the podcast before, so thank you for returning. My pleasure. It's great to be back with you. Wonderful. So you are the co-author with Raj Sisodia, who's one of the founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement, of a book called The Healing Organization. And in that book, you talk about transformation of the workplace, which is a really bold goal. So could you talk a little more about that and, and fill people in on what you and Raj talk about in, in the book and, and why you feel that this is essential to the future of business? Sure. Well, yes, the book is called The Healing Organization. And the subtitle is Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World. <laughs> <laughs> And I love that. (laughs) Think big. Think big. But we're we're really actually quite serious. That in the U.S., let's say, uh, we know that government and nonprofits together form only 20% of our economy. 80% of our economy is business. Mm -hmm. So business is clearly the most powerful influence on the well-being of society for better or for worse. And obviously we're, we're committed to make it for better, not only for obvious reasons such as climate and the numbers of people who are unable to afford health care or who may actually go bankrupt because they don't have enough health care support or people who are suffering from opioid addiction. U.S., we, it's, it's tragic to say we lead the world in opioid addiction, mm-hmm. in gun violence, in obesity, and in the rising level of our rate of suicide, yeah. oh yeah, also in incarceration rate. Right, so, yes. So when we talk about uh, awakening the conscious of business to help save the world, what we really mean is we, we can't count on governments or even noble nonprofits to, to alleviate those those tragic elements of of human suffering Mm -hmm. business is going to have to do it 
And you're, talk, you're talking about more than, you know, some corporate social responsibility program or wellness programs or it, tactics. Yeah, that's, that's you know, this, look, we're all familiar with greenwashing and mm-hmm. corporate social responsibility usually means we're going to make some sort of effort to try to fix the problem that we've been causing all along. <laughs> the other tragic thing is, I mean, uh, these all of these uh, blights that I just pointed to, you know, take uh, uh, opioid addiction. Well, sadly, it, it's largely driven by unconscious and. Uh, corporate interests that aren't informed by conscience, by they're just trying to sell people stuff, get them addicted to it. That you know, they tried that strategy with uh, cigarettes for many years. Uh, eventually, you know, regulators helped to uh, liberate us from that, and they moved on to a whole range of different drugs. They keep making up new diseases <laughs> so that you can <laughs> get the drug for it. Right. No, it's often the, the drugs you're taking that are causing the next disease. Uh, and, and look, here's the thing. Uh, most of this, most people who go to business school don't think, gee, I want to grow up and destroy the planet and ruin people's lives for my short-term self-aggrandizement and profit. Yeah. Most, most, there are some, there are some who, who actually are that, that evil. But yeah. if, if, not con- if not consciously, but right. that's the outcome. That's right. Yeah. Most people just think, well, you know, business uh, providing jobs and economy and that that's going to be good for everyone. And that is a big part of the genius of Adam Smith, the, the probably the, the father of contemporary capitalism, who wrote The Wealth of Nations mm-hmm. and, and, and was accurate in saying that freedom leads to prosperity. And even unconscious capitalism, with all of the tragic challenges that I just uh, discussed, has been a huge net positive for the world since, really, if you look at the last 250 years since Adam Smith published that book, Mm -hmm. people, quarter of a million people are, are raised out of poverty every day. The, the, the percentage of the population that is living in extreme pro- poverty has lessened dramatically and continues to lessen dramatically. And if you read Steven Pinker, Enlightenment mm-hmm. Now and The Better Angels, Angels of Our Nature, you know that even though it doesn't seem like it, if you read the news, humanity overall is better off than we ever have been. There's less war, less violence, less violence against women, less slavery, Right. more prosperity in the world as an overall percentage of population than ever before in human history by far, and the data are really clear. Right. However, even though on these macro trends in so many ways we're getting better, it's still just not okay that, at least it's not okay with me and it's not okay with Raj, and it's probably not okay with a lot of the people who listen that, yeah. uh, that more than half of Americans couldn't come up with $400 in an emergency right? and that they're living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, so, so Adam Smith, as I said, was a genius and his vision 
just to be really clear, his vision was to uplift people who were living in poverty, right? To create, you know, what we we call today the, the middle class, a broad middle class is, is the best way of ensuring uh, that freedom continues to lead to prosperity, that, that democracy, freedom, prosperity, and abundance can be shared as widely as possible, as inclusively as possible for all the stakeholders in, in the society. Mm -hmm. But in order for us to really execute that, to, to make that vision real, we have to refer to the book that Adam Smith wrote 17 years before The Wealth of Nations. Hmm. And that book is called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Right. And what's happened, of course, is that contemporary capitalism, especially since 1970, when Milton Friedman mm -hmm. published his now infamous <laughs> uh, paper, uh, putting forth the notion that the social responsibility of business is to make a profit, period. Right. And it's somehow that that would work out for everybody. Well, it's no, sorry. It's, it's a bit, a little bit like trickle, trickle down economics. It's, it, it sounds good on first blush, but then you have to go, wait a minute. That, yeah. yeah, you have to, it gives you pause. And one of the things you talk about in that book is assuming the moral responsibility to alleviate prevent and alleviate unnecessary suffering. So that moral responsibility element has shifted culturally over time. It's, it's, it's shifted. And there's, there's some really wonderful news here that if we were just trying to make an argument for moral responsibility and that you will sleep better at night if you treat all your stakeholders with fairness and dignity and caring. Well, we could make that argument, but a lot of cynics might resist it. And wouldn't the argument be so much more compelling if we could show you the data that companies that care for all their stakeholders, including their communities and environment, that are more inclusive, that are more proactive around diversity, that those companies are more profitable mm -hmm. and make more money. Yes. So even, even if you were a scorched <laughs> earth, ruined people's life, cold-hearted, old-fashioned, Friedman-esque capitalist, you'd be waking <laughs> up and say, I should at least pretend. Uh, right. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and we see this now, you know, this was... Obviously, last year, the business roundtable mm -hmm. got up and said, hey, look, the, the doctrine, doctrine of shareholder primacy, that's the Friedman doctrine, has mm -hmm. outlived its usefulness. Yeah. And, and Larry Fink, the CEO of the world's biggest asset manager, stated in his letter to CEOs this year that we, we need to, actually, it was a 2019 letter to CEOs, that you must invest in companies with a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you must be a company with a higher purpose if you want us to invest in you. Now, that's partly because Larry Fink, I think, is a good guy and a visionary, and he, but he's also because he's paying attention to the data, and he knows that in the U.S. alone, we are, we are in the beginnings of the greatest transfer of wealth in human history. Right. $23 trillion and change will pass 
from baby boomers to millennials mm -hmm. in, in, in the period we're going through now. And we know that millennials more than any previous generation are more passionate about the idea that what they do with their lives, what they do with their money, what their company does has to serve the interests of all the stakeholders in the society, has to protect the planet, has to protect human rights and opportunity. Right. And they're not compromising about this. So <laughs> well, and we've, we've, talked, brilliant. we've talked about that before on the podcast with, uh, I've done interviews with impact investor leaders and they've talked about that. They also talk about the this transfer of wealth happening to women as well, who are also of a similar, of course, this isn't a, an absolute, but it's, they're, they're more, women tend to be more interested in um, the things that you just talked about in the context of millennials. So there's a, there's a big shift in that direction with the transfer of wealth. A, a huge shift. And so, so this is, this is the good news. And we, Raj and I make the argument in the first section of the healing organization, based on the data, based on historical perspective, looking at the original intentions of Adam Smith, the how do we marry the theory of moral sentiments with the wealth of nations, which was his intention all along? Where did we go wrong? Part of where we went wrong in the US is right at the beginning, uh, John Adams didn't listen to his wife. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, we actually have the letters, the, the exchange of letters between uh, John Adams and his wife, who was you know, saying you have to enfranchise women right from the beginning. Right. He said, that's ridiculous. I mean, there's no way we could do that. She said, you're going to pay if you don't. Society <laughs> suffer. Yeah. Uh, and it's amazing how long it took for women to be enfranchised to vote. Yeah. And then to serve on corporate boards and as CEOs. But so, again, there's there's huge progress in rebalancing. And this is, by the way, uh, some of this is gender related, obviously, but what we're talking about is a principle that goes beyond gender to a harmony of these principles of uh, uh, yin and yang, of masculine and feminine principles. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, right and left brain is another metaphor for it. Right. And when, when you, you, you talk about the four archetypes or right. archetypal energies in the book of male, or masculine, feminine, child, and elder. Yes. And the, the elder energy in every family, in a healthy family, the elder energy holds the wisdom, mm -hmm. holds the, the, the meaning, the purpose, the, the big picture of legacy. The masculine and the feminine energies harmonize between the need to be assertive, to be bold, and to be caring, and to be patient, mm. to speak and to listen. Obviously, we need a healthy balance between those two. Yeah. And the childlike energy is the energy of playfulness and joy and fun and learning and exploration. Mm. So a healthy family has a, a balance of those energies, as does a healthy company and a healthy society. So unfortunately, the trend in the US has been to denigrate the, the elders to be focused in an absurd way on youth and to drive everything towards youth 
Great. and treat the elderly as disposable. Mm -hmm. uh, and instead of the healthy, playful child, we have the spoiled, rotten, <laughs> entitlement-oriented. Yeah, immaturity. Uh, give it to me now, ridiculous, uh, uh, out of control immaturity, which leads to uh, debt because people want what they want now on a household basis right. as a country, the record levels of debt uh, without responsibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then also, you know, we also, uh, as a, a culture, uh, kept the feminine down, but that's obviously been changing in a big way. <laughs> Hallelujah. So, yeah. so we are, uh, we, you know, and, and, and the thing for each of us as individuals is first find that balance in yourself. What's your higher principle? What's your higher purpose? Uh, how are you, how is your life informed by wisdom traditions? How, How's your yang, yang and your yin and find the harmony and the balance? Uh, are you a better talker or a better listener? Yeah. Find, the, find the ability to do both of those in harmony. And then can you bring joy and playfulness mm -hmm. and curiosity, but also delay of gratification to your life every day? <laughs> right. Yeah. Unique concept, it seems sometimes, but something you talk about in the book is uh, defining, communicating, and living by a healing purpose. And your your focus has been uh, certainly in that in that conscious capitalism realm, but also in creativity and innovation, using historical figures like Edison and Leonardo da Vinci as models. So, why a book now on public speaking. I mean, that's a form of communication and, and uh, you certainly talk about um, that communication and connection in your, in your last book, The Art of Connection. But why this now? Because there's so much divisiveness and, and rampant with COVID and it's made connection even more challenging for many people, I think. So what's, why the focus on public speaking at the moment? Yes. Well, so this is throughout my entire career, which now spans five decades. <laughs> just warming up, just getting started. Yeah. Uh, so, you know what they say, the first uh, 45 years are the most challenging. <laughs> uh, so I've always had, uh, first of all, I've always been oriented towards this idea of conscious capitalism before the name even existed. Mm -hmm. it, it dawned on me early on that it was business that was going to make a difference. So if we could help business be more creative, more conscious and compassionate, that that would be the way to make the, the best possible difference in the world. So my first focus in my career was teaching the skills of creative thinking. How do you find solutions? And that led to the publication 22 years ago of how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. Mm -hmm. And then about uh, uh, 14 years ago, to another book called Innovate Like Edison, which I co-authored with Thomas Edison's great, great, great grandniece. Hmm. So the aim was to, to, to give people role models, examples, and practices to generate creative solutions and to think like an innovator. And what I found, because you know, I actually, I don't just write books, I really work with real companies and real leaders, and I do a lot of executive coaching where I help people think more creatively and lead innovation in real companies and, and organizations of all kinds. 
And what I, what I learned was that to be successful, it's actually relatively easy to train people to think in more creative manner and in a more innovative way. Where it gets even more challenging is helping people build the relationships they need to build in order to implement their ideas. So that is why I wrote The Art of Connection, which came out three years ago. And that's why since then, uh, I've been working on and now have released Mastering the Art of Public Speaking because you get the creative idea, you have the innovative framework, you've built the relationships, now you've got to stand up and talk to people about it or get in front of a Zoom screen and, and, and talk to people in disparate locations around the world and you have to make your message compelling, engaging, and unforgettable. Mm. So it's just, it's, you know, obviously what I want to do with Mastering the Art of Public Speaking, I, the people I'm hoping will read this and use it the most are the ones who want to champion healing-related causes, who want to make the world a better place and want to be more persuasive, want to know how to stand up in front of any side size group and get their message across in a way that is compelling, engaging, unforgettable, and might as well have it be fun too. Yeah. Well, you, you said that, and I, I certainly have seen this to be the case in uh, working with my clients, that your presentation skills become more important as you move into leadership roles. And for that, you need excellent presentation skills. But before we get more into the, the presentation skills, I just want to take that leadership thread and just develop that a little bit and ask you about the leader experience of awakening consci consciousness in a healing organization. So what does a healing leader look like? So just so we get a picture of where we're heading with all this. Well, Raj and I found that there were three types of healing leaders and healing organizations. And we profile representatives of each of these three types in the book. And the first type are those who start out from the beginning with this idea of using their enterprises to help alleviate suffering and elevate joy. Mm. You know, the word healing means returning to wholeness. So if you think about you know, the company uh, Seventh Generation or Ben and Jerry's, uh, these are companies that from, their, from the very beginning, uh, Whole Foods is this kind of company, from the very beginning, they wanted to do what they were doing in order to serve a higher purpose. Mm -hmm. there's, there's a company that we talk about in the healing organization called Life Guides, similar right. sort of enterprise, uh, helping to uh, teach people, uh, they, they teach people uh, how to be guides to help peer-to-peer -peer, uh, dealing with life challenges. Uh, and it's an amazing genius model that empowers people to help one another. It's an HR benefit for companies that, that cost almost nothing and people get support when they just got found out that uh, one of their parents has dementia or Alzheimer's, they're gonna need to be caring for that parent. Or if they're going through 
a, a difficult divorce. They can talk to a trained peer who's been through the same experience yeah. uh, and, and their company can, can get them this benefit for almost nothing. So, you know, the, the vision of, of Life Guides is to have a billion people around the world get help with their most important life challenges so that they can alleviate that suffering and elevate joy so they can be better able to perform at work and, and, and experience fulfillment and satisfaction in their work. So these kinds of companies, Life Guides, Ben and Jerry's, Seventh Generation, Whole Foods, they started to, to try to solve world problems, but they're also all profit-oriented businesses. Life Guides is a B Corp. Most of them are, are adopting these new models that have evolved in the last 20, 30 years as yeah. people realize how important this is. It's a benefit corporation, I think. That's right. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next, the next type of company is sort of in the middle. And these are companies where people have basic sense of ethics and goodness and caring. They usually give lots of money to their, uh, to charity. They, they sponsor events in their communities. They try to be good corporate citizens and they're, they're, reasonably ethical in how they function, but they haven't yet taken full responsibility for aligning what they do every day with a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have clients who are like this, and you know, that's a lot of the people that, that engage me are people who wanna figure out how they can be more aligned with a higher purpose and still operate effectively and deal with their real business challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the com- one of the companies in the book it happens to be a client of mine called Hillman Consulting, uh, based in New Jersey. They were, uh, the truth is they were a great company before I started working with them. Uh, but the CEO will tell you they're an even greater company now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, well, that all those companies kind of tap into this uh, idea that this well, truth that we're born to be our neighbor's keepers, that cooperation is essential to our survival and that looking out for each other is, is uh, what we most want rather than that sort of doggy dog evolution model that somehow got corrupted into this is how things are. Well, it's also corruption of evolution because yeah, uh, Darwin uses the phrase survival of the fittest twice in origin of species. And the word love is something like 90 something times. Yeah. Yeah. Heard that before. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a corruption. And then it's social Darwinism, Mm -hmm. uh, which was propounded by uh, the philosopher Herbert Spencer and adopted by Andrew Carnegie. uh, Survival of the fittest in business uh, was it uses justification to overwork uh, steel workers 20% 20% of male deaths in Pittsburgh during the time of the Carnegie Steelworks were people dying in Carnegie's factories. Mm. And, wow. uh, and, you know, and, and this is tragic because Carnegie actually really wanted to make the world a better place through business, but he was just operating on this limited understanding. Mm. And he, he, was, he was genuinely interested in, in learning and tra- change and trying to leverage his 
wealth to make the world a better place. And he left all sorts of wonderful endowments to sort of make up for the misery <laughs> caused. But there's a story in the book. He, he actually brought Herbert Spencer over to Pittsburgh to show him the, the steelworks and say, look, this is social Darwinism, your philosophy in action. And Herbert Spencer said, if I had to spend any more time here, I'd kill myself. <laughs> wow. So, That's quite a reaction. Right. So, but you know, now we know better. Uh, yeah. Uh, now we know better. Rockefeller, uh, uh, Carnegie, even you know, look, we love Bill Gates. We love uh, uh, Warren Buffett. They started the giving pledge uh, uh, where these billionaires pledge to give more than half of their incredible wealth to, right. to humanity. And they, you know, they've enrolled now. There are 204 members. Last time I looked, mm. giving pledge. But what Raj and I say is that's an outdated model because it matters how you make the money. Yeah. Right? Well, it makes me think of the Maya Angelou quote of, if you know better, once you know better, you can do better. Or I'm right. sure I'm, I'm not right. quite capturing it, but yeah, I mean, there's so much evidence to support, not just for the purpose of making more profit, which as you've said already is an outcome of having this kind of focus, but also just in terms of alleviating suffering. It's, well, Charles Butt is the, uh, the chairman of a company called HEB based in Texas. It's a grocery chain. His family is, is net worth is more than $10 billion. Mm. Charles Butt is in the giving pledge. And he told his CEO, pay our people as much as you can not as little as you can. Right. So you know, it's just a whole other way of, of, of being. And he's worth $10 billion. He's not hurting. You know, he, he says, okay, I'm giving away at least 5 billion. I, you know, I can get by on the 5 billion I'm, I'm keeping. Yeah. Uh, so this is tremendous prosperity, abundance linked to human goodness. Yeah. I, I wrote an article uh, while people are waiting to read the healing organization, uh, on my website, they can read this article I wrote. It's called uh, The Giving Pledge Needs the Healing Oath. Mm. Giving Pledge Needs the Healing Oath because it matters how you make the money. So more and more people are waking up to that. But in some ways, the most interesting stories that we came across were the stories of people who really were just maximizing shareholder value without regard to the consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the, one of the most amazing stories in the book is a story of this company called FIFCO. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the gentleman who's the CEO, uh, who was at one of our recent conscious capitalism conferences and just an amazing visionary guy. He, he went, he got his MBA. He worked for Philip Morris and he got really good at optimizing shareholder return in this enterprise that Tobacco company. Yeah, it destroys, destroys human life. Yeah. Uh, and creates massive collateral damage for the society. Uh, and well, you, go ahead. I, I think that's part of the criticism of Jeff Bezos, who is a you know, multi-billionaire, and yet uh, the folks in work for Amazon are constantly struggling financially because the pay is so low, I understand. So look, Mackenzie, his ex-wife, joined the giving pledge with her share. Did she? Yeah, but he's still That's not. Great. And, and 
Wow. Uh, yeah, we're, we. Anyway, let's. We yeah. Don't have, <laughs> don't have a story yet of the of the awakening of conscience in, in right. that area. So uh, <laughs> we're going to focus on hope and uplifting. It's yes. Just, that yes. would make us all more depressed. We don't need any more. Yeah. Of that. So good idea. Let, let's send Jeff uh, good energy to wake up and 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 optimize his incredible brilliance and amazing wealth. I mean, yeah, he's got an opportunity to, to, to be someone who, who makes life so much better for so many people. Yeah. And, and, and you know, what's your, le- what's your legacy? The winner of the rat race is still a rat. Uh, no, he, uh, uh, the name of the game is not he who dies with the most toys wins or with the most power or the biggest bank account. What's, right. your, what's your real legacy? Uh, how do you make a difference? Uh, and, and you know, just what what a, what a I mean, what an amazing amazing opportunity yeah. he has to and and is there anything anything that gives us more fulfillment more happiness than helping a fellow human not just not not because you know uh, your religious leader told you to but just right. intrinsically yes a, a, chi- a child smile somebody who's hungry you know, healthy humanity, somebody's hungry, you want to help feed them. Yeah. Somebody's sick, you want to help them get health care. Uh, uh, this, is, this is in our, the depth of our, our, our human nature, which has you know, sadly been uh, somewhat perverted. But anyway, let's go back to uh, FIFCO. So he, he, he has to deal with regulators, as you might imagine, in a tobacco company, and he's skilled at doing that. And he gets recruited away by this company based in Costa Rica that sells sugary soft drinks and beer. So uh-huh. he goes basically from an industry that uh, causes uh, uh, harm one way to two new ways to cause yeah. harm to humanity. Right. But then he, a funny thing happens to him. First, you know, he streamlines all the processes. He's a great MBA business manager. They're making more money, but people are leaving because they just, you know, love being there. And, and he basically has an awakening. And his awakening comes when he just starts to think, what if I treated these regulators and activists as stakeholders instead of as the enemy? Yes. So he, you know, he just, he wakes up and he thinks, gee, you know, we probably could reduce this, this, the sugar content of our soft drinks by 50% <laughs> and make them way healthier. Uh, so he calls on his flavor scientists and he says, can you get this done in six months? They get it done in three months because when you give people a task of doing something that will help other people, you get a level of energy that is, is just more powerful, stronger than the motivated energy of the opposite force. Right. So, and they did this and they didn't even announce it because they want to just see if people still enjoyed the soft drinks, which they did. And then they mentioned, oh, by the way, there's <laughs> 50% less sugar in these drinks and your kids are healthier. And by the way, in the two years of the launch, obesity rates were going down in the schools. Yeah, that's uh, great. So they did the same thing with the beer. Uh, they didn't reduce the alcohol level in the beer. What they did is uh, brought in consultants uh, to, and created a campaign to change drinking patterns from the dominant pattern, which was buy a six pack, drink it, and then obviously bad things happen when people do that, to have a cerveza or two with dinner with your family. Mm-hmm. 
And this, this, they changed the drinking pattern in, in Costa Rica and drunk driving deaths went down. Yeah. So then he also said, let me listen to all the environmental activists across every area of impact from solid waste and air and so on. And he said, okay, we take on the challenge. We will reduce our environmental impact in each of these areas to zero by the year 2018, which they did. Mm. So then he said, that's not good enough. We will now create a net positive alleviation of 10%. In other words, we'll improve the environment by 10% in all of these areas, which they are on track to accomplish. Meantime, I'll give you just one example. So, so they get their employees, their customers, their vendors, and their shareholders, and they get everybody together and they go clean up the solid waste at their competitors' plants. Just to ignite. <laughs> so how much do people love this company? It's the number, yeah. one, number one best place to work in Costa Rica. Hmm. People from all, CEOs from all over the world fly uh, to meet these people and find out how they're doing this. Right. And the company is way more profitable, growing much faster than, than before. People are lining up to, you know, to work at this place. Because people love to be around these kinds of companies. So yeah. It makes it's, more money. It's fantastic. And what an amazing illustration of uh, this, the tagline for my own business, which is infuse impact, infuse impact, ignite change, because all of that just, mushroomed in that company into benefits for everybody, customers, even affecting other companies. It ripples out. What a fantastic example. It's just, you know, what it is, people don't know it's possible. They don't yeah. know it's possible. So that's why that's where mastering the art of public speaking comes in because mm -hmm. you want to tell a story. You know, if you want to make a bigger difference, tell a tell a better story. Yeah. Would you recommend people thinking of themselves as a professional presenter, which, you know, could seem kind of intimidating. So is, what do you, what do you mean by that? I mean, it goes beyond well, the business really, stage, really. really simple. Most people, it's the number one fear of the American public. 74% of people suffer from glossophobia, the fear of public speaking. Hmm. So as a result, not only do they not think of it as, themselves as professionals, they think of it as the last thing they want to do. So that when they are asked to do a presentation or need to do one for their business or whether a eulogy could be a speech at a wedding, uh, could be uh, something uh, to your town council on an environmental issue or some other point that you are called upon to make in a public forum, the way the, the unconscious objective they set in their mind and heart and body is get through this without embarrassment and humiliation. Right. <laughs> yeah. And Rather, yeah, it's kind of a negative approach of I, just as long as I don't complete, completely humiliate myself, I'm good. And that's what sets people up for failure and embarrassment. It, it, it's paradoxical. That, that unconscious orientation is going to make you much more likely to have an embarrassing and unfortunate and unsuccessful experience. Mm -hmm. So instead, learn what 
professional speakers? No, I've been a professional speaker for more than 40 years. Travel, you know, before we did everything on the devices and, and the screen, mm-hmm. I traveled all over the world. I spoke to groups and people gave me money. So I'm a real, I'm a real professional speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and I've learned a lot. I spoke to every kind of group all over the world. A lot of times very less than receptive audiences because people were forced to come by their boss and there's other things they'd rather be doing. And I have to get them engaged, get a message across uh, and get them to give, you know, I get rated too. So if you don't get high ratings, you don't get invited back in a lot of these places. Mm-hmm. You know, you get a scorecard. So it's the pressure's on and I'm doing it for money. So it better be good. And it has right. to be good every time. Right. So, so I've paid attention to this. What works? What doesn't work? So if you, if, if you're not doing it for money, you're just doing it because your, your boss invited you to or because you something you care about. Would you like to know what I've learned in 40 years about how to make this easy, fun, effective? Absolutely. Yeah, because that's what's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, the, the last thing I'll ask you about before we get to the rapid round is I, one thing that I found so helpful in the book among many other tools. So I, I really recommend people uh, read the book for all the other things in it, but the 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 mind map approach that you use for helping to first structure the talk, but then use it as a memory tool. Because I think that's one of the it's certainly one of the fears I have is that I'll forget what I'm supposed to say next or what I had planned to say even in more even in general terms. So that mind map, which I've been using for years, but not in the way you described it. You described I, I guess the original approach of mind mapping that I guess has become kind of bastardized in some ways, but could you speak to that a little bit in terms of, of, uh, and you have this model of, uh, helps you recall that the pro what's in your, what's in your talk. Yes, it sure does. So the book mastering our public speaking is dedicated to my friend, Tony Buzan, who is the originator of mind mapping. Mm-hmm. And also one of the world's greatest public speakers. I've used mind mapping to write all of my books, 17 so far. I've used it to prepare all of my presentations. Mm-hmm. I've used it to help my clients write their vision, mission, values, strategies, set their goals. And I can tell you what's fascinating is I've taught it to a lot of people as a way to generate and organize their ideas to prepare for a presentation. Mm-hmm. And over all these years, I've gotten blessed to have received many, many letters and now emails and so on uh, from people who benefited from this, benefited from learning mind mapping and public speaking and creative thinking. But one of the, one of the themes over all those years where people have gotten the greatest benefit is exactly what you point out, that not only does it help them get their ideas together for their presentation, but then on stage, they remember what they were planning to say. Right, yes. That gets the butterflies to fly in formation almost more than anything else. You know, if you, people, and having said that, if you're ever up in front of people and you forget what you were saying, just say to the audience, Oh, what was I saying? It, it slipped my mind. Yeah, that surprised me when I read that. Just like you would do with a friend. And, and somebody from the audience will say, oh, yeah, you were talking about this, this. And you say, oh, yeah, thank you. And right. now you're more connected to the audience and they trust you even more 
because you're human just like them. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, and, and I, I have to admit, when I first saw the, your first mind map in the book, I just looked at it, it kind of bewildered, but it really comes together when you get the explanation. So I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try that with my next talk. I'm, I'm an I'm a, a advocate now of that approach. So <laughs> do it, do it with colored pens on a sheet of paper, yeah. not the computer first. Right. I call it artisanal mind mapping. Mm. Engage your brain, you engage your creativity in a way that doesn't happen when you drag and click stuff on the screen. Not that that isn't useful, but artisanal mind mapping is, is the way is make that your foundation practice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I love that. Well, Michael, I have so many things I'd love to explore with you, including more things in mastering the art of public speaking. But um, just to kind of bring this to a close this time, uh, I always ask a rapid round of three questions around impact. Are you game to to answer those? Sure. Ask me anything. Great. So the first one is, what's the biggest thing you've learned about having impact? What I've actually learned is humility. <laughs> yeah. I've learned humility that when I first started my career, I mean, I literally moved to Washington, D.C. after living in London for eight years because I thought it was the place where I could teach creative thinking and innovative leadership that would most impact the world. Mm. And I was shocked to discover that government then as now did not seem to be interested in creative thinking. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm surprised that was your first choice, but uh, maybe you're more of an optimist than I am. But, that, but that's how I found my way to uh, to business. But in other words, I, I'm in businesses. Look, I've worked in, in attempting whole system change, trying to change the culture of a big organization. Uh, I had one client. Uh, I worked with a group of 450 people. This is part of a, a Fortune 100 multinational company. Uh, I did a program for them. Their employee engagement number was 27 out of 100. At the end of, I think about a two and a half year program I did for them, their employee engagement number was above 85%. It was a dramatic improvement. Uh, the culture was transformed. People loved it. And then they disbanded that group of 450 people. Mm. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I, does that dissuade me in any way from doing my best I can every day to try to implement whole system change and uplift culture and, and, and inspire people as much as I can? Not in the slightest, but to think that one can linearly go you know, from A to Z uh, and that step by step, there's a, a simple playbook that we can all follow and that everything's gonna follow the dictates of the way you would like it to work out uh, uh, is naive. And, and what I always say, if you're, if you're not humble, you're not paying attention uh, and yet pay attention and keep doing the best one can. Mm, mm, that's great. Well, the, the second question in the rapid round is what's the one thing you've consistently done that's contributed to your success and impact the most? Learn, continuous learning, learning something every day, learning, reflecting on what I could do differently, what I could do better, what could be more fun, what could help people. Continuous learning. Great. 
And the last question is, what's one insight or piece of advice you'd share with another business owner who's asking, how can I have more impact? How can I contribute more? To find a clear, higher purpose that when you, and then and create an image or symbol that, that expresses that purpose, translate it into specific values value statement that you wouldn't you wouldn't change under any circumstances. What do you stand for? Why are you here? What's your vision? Be vividly clear about those so that you can, every time you think about it, talk about it, you get energy. Mm. Oh, absolutely. That's essential. I love that. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Your career has been really wide ranging from creativity to innovation and innovation to um, this whole realm of, of uh, conscious capitalism and the healing organization and, and uh, also in communicating and connecting. So thank you for sharing everything you did today. I, lo- I love how this all wove together. Thank you. Lots of fun. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Two ways. Uh, one is my main website is michaelgelb.com. That's G-E-L-B, michaelgelb.com. And there people can get access to all of my books, to my blog, to all kinds of videos. Uh, we're, my last podcast with you is up there and this one will be up there. Uh, so lots of good podcasts. And they can also sign up for our free newsletter. And they also can learn about our soon-to-be-released online video training seminar on how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. So that's all at michaelgelb.com. And then there's also healingleader.com, healingleader.com. And that's for people who want to explore the possibility of working with me as their executive leadership coach. Mm. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for the work you're doing in the world, Michael. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. If you want to discover more about your impact, you can schedule a business impact assessment with me. That's 75 minutes of focus on your and your company's impact and how you can increase it. Just email me at Ursula at workalchemy.com to schedule your business impact assessment. It's my gift to you. Join us for more episodes, subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, so you'll know as soon as new episodes are available. You can even help spread the word. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts if you like what you've heard. Thanks for listening. Until next time, for ongoing support so you can have your own impact, join our community of leaders like you by liking the Work Alchemy Facebook page. Thank you.